Hi there and welcome to Dialogos with me, Will Milne, where we talk with some of the most interesting and insightful people in the world. Today I am so honoured to be joined by one of the most important Liberal Democrat politicians over the past two decades, Sir Vince Cable. Sir Vince has held a number of important positions both in government and in his party. Most recently, of course, he was leader of the Liberal Democrats, he's also been deputy leader, and under the coalition government, he was Secretary of State for Business. And throughout this time, he was Member of Parliament for Twickenham. Thank you so much for joining me today, Vince. Okay, no problem. Thank you. Uh, so Vince, you were born in York in 1943. What were yeah. the prevailing political currents around you, both at home and in York more generally at the time? Well, um, I was a sort of wartime baby. So a very different generation, a very different kind of politics. Um, Politics in Britain alternated between the Labour Party, which had just inherited the post-war um, dispensation, the creation of the National Health Service, and Conservatives, who were very moderate one-nation Conservatives by uh, today's standards. And what was beginning to emerge in the 1950s, when I suppose I became politically conscious, was what at the time was called butskalism, which was a kind of consensus. Um, parties not really varying a great deal in terms of their policy offering. Uh, and Britain at, at that time, of course, was still a colonial country, um, seen as one of the big powers in the world. It was before the you know, decades of decline and, and difficulty we've had since. Uh, in terms of the influences on me, um, I would, they were actually a bit more extreme. I mean, my father was um, came from a kind of working class conservative background, had very kind of right wing views, um, very pro empire, very uh, kind of ra- racially kind of um, uh, straightforward views in a, in a rather unhelpful way. Um, and was it was a sort of active Tory who was sort of chairman of his local branch, uh, but but pretty right wing by the standards of the time and and indeed today's standards. Um, my best friend was a communist, so I had the opposite point of view. He was a really hard line. Uh, his dad was a shop steward in in the carriage works in York. Uh, later in life, he became a very uh, radical campaigner he told me that he'd burnt down his art school as an act of revolutionary zeal i'm not sure i believed him but anyway it was, it was very much the polar opposite of my dad's view uh, and i suppose i felt comfortable somewhere between the two which was roughly where my mother was but she was too shy really to express her politics um, and so I suppose I became a liberal voter sympathizer, liberal social democrat, that kind of area in my teens, and partly as a result of arguing with my father and arguing with my best friend. What was it that you saw that made you a liberal? So obviously you were, you were in the middle of quite strong views um, from your friend and um, your father, but what prompted you to specifically become a liberal? Well, I think there was one particular event that sort of made me politically conscious. Um, 1956, I think I was then 13, um, was the invasion of Suez that was a fiasco. Um, My father saw it as a betrayal of Britain. Um, 
saw it in very nationalistic terms, thought the Shantri should be getting behind the government to overthrow Colonel Nasser and stop the nationalisation of the Suez Canal. Um, whereas I, I suppose even in those rather immature days, saw the importance of the United Nations, of um, getting international agreement, understanding uh, where a radical Arab nationalist came from. Um, I wouldn't say that was necessarily liberal, but it was kind of anti-colonial um, and the beginnings of a, a more sort of left of centre approach to politics. Uh, liberal I, liberals were, were very, very minor party in those days. I mean, I think they had six MPs, of which two uh, were by agreement with the other uh, parties. The Labour Party had a pact. Uh, so in, in reality, they only had four, um, two of whom were in obscure parts of Wales, one of whom was in uh, the Orkneys and Shetland, another was in Cornwall. So th this wasn't really a national party. But uh, my mother, I think, partly as a sort of protest against my dad's uh, hardline views, told me in secret that, that she'd voted Liberal in the general election which followed 1959 and sort of encourage me to believe that that was actually a fairly sensible option. Um, I sort of want to fast forward quite a bit because I think it's really interesting how you entered politics so late. Uh, well, sort of, I know you were a Labour councillor in Glasgow early on, but um, obviously you had a long, really successful career as an economist, uh, um, economics advisor, you were at Shell. Was it very daunting uh, coming to politics at such a late age? Because I was I was speaking to Ian Dale um, in my last episode, and he was just saying how he just felt he couldn't get in um, at the age that he went in. And sorry, to, I'm sorry to make you feel old, but but um, how 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 was that? Um, and why did you make the change from economics to politics? Uh, just fast forwarding. So well, I never, I never really sort of gave up. I mean, I, there was a 30-year gap between my yeah. standing for Parliament and my getting in, um, and I got in at the fifth attempt. But I'd, I'd, I'd maintained contact <clears throat> pretty much initially with the Labour Party, then with the SDP Liberal Alliance throughout, and I'd stood in York twice in the 1980s. So I was yeah. still, you know, heavily engaged with politics. Um I think the thing that, um, on the one hand, prevented me uh, functioning effectively over that long period as a politician, but also kept me going, was my family. I mean, I took the view that my first responsibility was to make sure I had a happy, stable family, and I did. My, I had a lovely wife. She sadly died, but uh, and she was very supportive of what I was doing. Um, and I think she took the view, certainly towards the end, that I'd invested so much time and effort and money in political activity that it would be wrong just to give it up. Um, so she was the kind of rock that that kept me going. Um, and was you know she, she sadly in the latter years when I was a candidate in Twickenham, she was fighting cancer. So I was trying to balance caring and politics but you know she she stuck with me and encouraged me to keep going and help me in practical ways 
So I think that was that was a key factor. And the point I always make to young people in politics is that you've got to have a secure backstory. You've got to have a secure relationships, people you can rely on, people you can trust, and who give you emotional support when you need it. I think that is true because um, like, it's quite a different story, but I was here listening to something about Ted Heath and at the end of every day, he did, obviously, I don't know how, he, I don't think he had a big family. He, obviously he was single, but he went home and he would play the piano to himself and that was his release. I sort of thought that must be very lonely, just not having someone or uh, a mm-hmm. friend or, you know, to actually to open up to and to, to rely on. Um, so yeah, that it's quite interesting how it, um, sustained you. Would you say you would have given up if it wasn't for having a wife telling you to keep going, especially during those hard last years? Uh, probably, yes. I, I think yeah. if, if my wife had put her foot down and said, look, you know, you've got to choose. Um, you've got to, you know, put family and career first. And of course, they're intertwined because the career is what pays for the, pays for the mortgage and, and the summer holidays and so on. Um, if she put her foot down and say, no, no, th- these things are incompatible, I would have certainly given it up. But she never did. Uh, yeah. So I kept going. Yeah. Um, when you entered Parliament, did you did you want to be uh, prominent? Did you want to have, did you have great, great ambitions or was it more just serving my constituency? That's what I really want to do um, purely. Yeah, so my ambitions initially were quite modest, um, yeah. exactly as you say. I was, you know, re- really incredibly gratified in some kind of way that I'd been elected after all that time and effort. Um, and I felt I owed it to um, the people who had voted for me that I concentrated on constituency matters. And, and there was a simple practical thing of getting re-elected. So I didn't have a big majority. I mean, it was, I think 4,000 initially, something like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I had to really focus on that as my first issue. I was also, you know, 54 when I first got in. So I was regarded as one of the older MPs. I saw all these, you know, bright young things who'd been special advisors, knew their way around Parliament. Um, and I, I could see that, you know, there wasn't a great deal of scope for advancement in the traditional greasy pole way um, added to which we had a, a labor government with a very big majority um, re-elected again 2001 um, so i was you know approaching 60 before i had a, a serious um, role which was to be the economic spokesman of the lib dems and yeah, the Lib Dems, although under Charles Kennedy we had 60-odd MPs, were not a major force in the land at that time. So it wasn't, It was. It, you know, it, it gave me a certain, initially anyway, a certain amount of profile, but it, it wasn't a big career move. Yeah. Um, speaking about, obviously, back to you coming to politics quite late, um, I was thinking about people like William Hague, um, George Osborne, who they... They or even Rishi Sunak these days, who went so quickly and they're at the, the peak of their careers. Um, do you ever see that as a disadvantage for them? And did, ha, have you witnessed politicians like I know you in you worked closely with George Osborne tripping up because of their lack of experience uh, uh, that you yes, have? I, as... I, think, I think that is true. I, I didn't want to be um, critical of them in that way. Mm-hmm. 
course, coming to politics, you know, relatively young, they have energy and they have enthusiasm and, uh, um, you know, and you, you have to defer to them in that kind of way. Um, uh, I think the, the, the example I would use is Norman Lamont, who was actually a, a, um, a contemporary of mine at university. We were yeah. sort of close friends, but we knew each other very well. Um, and uh, I saw, saw him going into politics young. Uh, he became Chancellor of the Exchequer at quite a young age. Uh, it wasn't a great success. Um, and he, he, he's, he's been sort of lost ever since. I mean, I meet him from time to time at college reunions and I, I can tell he's kind of slightly yeah. sad. I mean, he, he'd reached his peak aged 50. He'd got divorced, I think at that time, because the stresses of politics, um, and he's been sort of rather drifting ever since. I mean, he's, he's an interesting guy and, and he's got, you know, very good brain, uh, political brain, but but wasted. Um, and I think quite a few of the others, like I think William Hague is a better example. I mean, he's, uh, he came back after a failure as party leader as a very good foreign secretary in the coalition. And he's since made himself a kind of elder statesman with very sensible and interesting views. Uh, he writes well. So he's turned out okay, and I think probably Osborne too. Uh, my party leader Nick Clegg was another shooting star, uh, but he's fallen on his feet in private business. So some of these, um, you know, bright young things um, have done very well. But but there there is a pattern of uh, people coming through too early, um, making mistakes, burning out, and then not having anything to go to. Um, in terms of your um, you increasing in profile and um, recognition, um, how does that? It's quite a weird question, but how does that feel? Just becoming more known, or you walk on the street and perhaps someone knows who you are. Is that a weird feeling, or was it? Well, I think this it, it it really happened to me about two thousand and seven eight. Um, hmm. All of a sudden, you know, I'd been fairly. I think prominent in the Lib Dems, but fairly obscure nationally. And I think starting with Northern Rock and then through the financial crisis, I suddenly found I was, you know, the, the person that all the media turned to. Uh, I wrote a book in quick time um, and suddenly became a celebrity. You know, and it was um, it was a bit overwhelming, but I, you know, enjoyed the attention as I think people do. Um, and I was clearly making an impact in terms of policy thinking, uh, and it also ensured that within the Lib Dems, I was effectively Nick Clegg's deputy and had a significant influence on the way the party functioned and, and uh, a big role in the coalition. So I, I think I enjoyed that kind of attention for the first time during the financial crisis, uh, and that, in a way that's sort of made my reputation and a whole lot of things came off the back of it. I mean, I got to dance on Strictly Come Dancing because we tried dancing as a hobby um, and became sort of certainly much better known locally. People had voted for me as a name, but I, I sort of became a personality that people identified with. So it happened quite quickly. Um, you know, round about that, that period. Bearing in mind, I was about 65 at the time. You know? mm. Um, 
on the financial crash um, and sort of that time when you say uh, you were seen as uh, a figure of uh, uh, who, who had great knowledge uh, on these subjects, um, why was that? I think I did think I thought I read somewhere that you were one of the people who predicted the financial crash quite early on. I don't know if that's I, I don't know where I read that. But I'm, I'm given credit for being one of the few people who did. I think probably is a bit flattering. I mean, what I had been warning of for years was the build-up of debt as a result of mortgage lending into the housing market and the housing market getting completely out of control and the banks um, making a lot of money from, frankly, irresponsible lending, stoking, stoking up that market. Now, I mean, as it happened, the key developments in the financial crisis were the unraveling of the complex derivatives. And I haven't really talked about that, frankly. I, I wasn't part of the financial world and I didn't fully understand the detail of that. But, but the core point, which was that bank lending had got out of control, was becoming highly responsible, and that much of it, um, and that Britain was particularly exposed because of its very large banks, um, NatWest, Barclays, HSBC, to some extent Lloyd. I mean, my basic insights at that time were right. Um, you know, I, as I said, I wouldn't claim credit for having predicted the full course of the financial crisis, and I saw it largely in British terms rather than in American terms. Hmm. Um. In terms of over uh, the two thousands um, and up to twenty fifteen, what were who were what leaders did you get on with best uh, in the party, and who 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 do you think led them the best? And did you have any cold relationships with Liberal Democrat leaders? Um, no, I, I there were a group of people that I um, worked with closely. David Laws, particularly um matthew oakshot who's in the house of lords was a sort of personal friend but also politically quite close um no i, I was a bit of a loner i mean i wasn't particularly part of a faction and i did my own thing um if, if i had a cause at that time within the party it was to try to steer the party to um financial responsibility i mean it's very easy if you're an opposition party to go promising everybody the moon you know I mean, we, we saw that in an extreme form with jeremy corbyn and, and um mcdonald you know sort of magic money uh, and the, i'm afraid the lib dems were very like that at that point uh, you know we were going to have free this and free that and spend more money on everything um without a very clear indication of where the money was going to come from. So David Laws and I set about trying to introduce fiscal discipline um, in the Lib Dem, rather in the way that uh, Rachel Reeves is doing in the Labour Party now. Um, so that, that was the main contribution I made. I wasn't actually very popular with my colleagues for saying that, because there were certain causes that they were wedded to. Um, you know, tuition-free, getting rid of tuition fees was, was a classic case, which I regarded as completely impractical, as we later painfully discovered in government. Um, but generally, I was trying to tell people that we're going to have to cut things, not spend money. Uh, and that, that, in a way, was my distinctive contribution, though not a popular one. Um, 
in ter- in terms of uh when um uh there was a leadership contest um do you regret not standing in that leadership contest because i know you put it down to ageism i think but do you think it was also those other issues that contributed to you not being able to yes i i think it was um the ageism played a part but i don't think it was the sole factor i mean the main reason actually was that the um the two front runners who were nick clegg and chris hune were highly ambitious and very able and they had in in a way well i was um beavering away at becoming our finance spokesman and going around talking to bankers and other people about troubles in the financial system uh, they were building up support amongst my college for a future leadership contest and i hadn't really thought very much about it uh, and when um, um, mr campbell uh, resigned um i discussed I, I asked a few colleagues i said should i put my name forward uh, particularly as i seem to be doing quite well at prime minister's questions uh in the interregnum uh, i said should i put my name forward but the, the people i went to who i thought of as political friends said well we've already been signed up to support um, nick clegg or chris hume so i was out in the cold so i took the view i you know there was no point running i had no support um so i better get on and, and do well at what i was doing which was you know speaking out on the financial crisis and being acting leader for the party um what was your relationship like with uh the eventual leader uh, nick clegg um well we got on well enough um i mean he was a different generation but uh, he's very charming um you know very pleasant manner uh, and we got on well enough. It was clear that under the surface there was a certain amount of discomfort because, mm. um, you know, there were people saying I should have been leader after all and I hadn't been. I, mean, I, I think it wasn't me who was promoting that argument, but I think he felt uncomfortable that I was uh, gathering a vast amount of publicity, a lot more than him, had a much higher profile. <coughs> uh and he was just learning the ropes and wasn't getting any media attention so th- there was a certain amount of tension but you know it, w- it was good nature you know there were no arguments or rows that i could recall like one or two issues of policy where i fell out with him but you know that that happens i think in any political party particularly with somebody who's supposed to be responsible for finance uh, you say there were very few policy differences. Does that mean that had you led the Liberal Democrats, um, it would have taken the same path as Nick Clegg, uh, both you know going into coalition and also during the government? Well, I think before the election, I mean, my argument, where I was really in a minority of one, is that I could see coming that being in government was going to be a horrible, difficult experience. I mean, you know, the the economy had been very badly wounded by the financial crisis. There was an enormous fiscal problem. There was going to be a period of austerity, whether we liked it or not, however we did it. Um, So my slogan, which I would have campaigned on had I been leader, was adopting Churchill's blood, sweat and tears and promising absolutely nothing. But this was completely contrary to the 
established view of the time that you won votes by promising things, which we how we got onto this dangerous and ridiculous promise uh, about tuition fees, but other things too. Uh, I didn't think we should be campaigning to spend more um, money, that just that campaigning on the basis of being honest about the painful reality of the situation. During, um, I, I was reading, I was skimming through David Cameron's autobiography, looking for references to Vince Cable, and he said, um, David Cameron was saying how you were slightly sceptical about, as in coalition, as in you, you wanted the coalition, but you didn't think that that should be the order of government typically, and you just thought it was more of a necessity. I think that's what he was trying to get across uh, in contrast to yeah. other figures. Is that is that well, accurate? That's true. I thought I thought it, I didn't see it with any enthusiasm. I mean, I, uh, I, I'd always regarded the Tories as the enemy. You know, that, that was the nature of the relationship in my constituency, and it went back a long way. Um, I wasn't sort of ideologically aligned with the Conservatives. Uh, and I thought that the message we should be giving to the country is that we're working with another party in the national interest, but very reluctantly. Um, but the the view which Nick had, and many of his the people around him, was that we should embrace the coalition with great enthusiasm, um, as the new way forward, I think he personally felt more comfortable with Cameron than Gordon Brown, whereas I did the other way around. Um, so the, 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 there was a difference of approach. I mean, I, I, I thought we had to do the coalition because that's the way the arithmetic came out. Uh, and because there was a crisis in the economy, we had no choice but to step up to the plate. But it wasn't with enthusiasm, and I didn't think we should be showing enthusiasm. Oh, I see. So, when you say maintaining an identity, what does that? What would that in practice mean uh, uh, in a coalition government? Because surely you have to um, support everything the government is doing. Well, that wasn't clear. Mm. Um, I mean, the basis of their coalition agreement was that we did finesse quite a lot of issues and reach common ground, but. There were a lot of other issues where we agreed to disagree. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I saw no problem with um, stating the Lib Dem case publicly. Um, the, the Tories had a different view. Um, but, you know, we would come to a decision and we would act on it. But it, it, it didn't seem to me sensible or right that we should necessarily pretend that we're in favour of things that we weren't in favour yeah. of. I, that caused quite a bit of difficulty. I mean, just to take one relatively small example, um, I thought the the help to buy policy for housing uh, was was utterly and completely disastrous. And it was a view widely shared outside politics. You know, everything from the Daily Mail to the Guardian saw the problem with it. It was just stoking up house prices and getting us back to the problems we'd had before 2010, but it was it was popular. And certainly my party leadership felt that, you know, we should go along with it and endorse it and support um, George Osborne's policy, whereas I publicly attacked it. Um, in the event, I mean, it, it happened and there was nothing I could do to stop it, but it didn't seem to me that there was a problem with speaking out occasionally and expressing a different point of view. 
in terms of you say uh, obviously there's a, an example of you differing with George Osborne um, ideologically did austerity go against your instincts or um, your non-Tory instincts or did you see it as necessary at the time it was necessary at the time um, I mean it goes back to you know basic intellectual honesty about the, the state of the economy. The fact is we inherited an enormous fiscal and external deficit. Um, it had been accepted under Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown that there was going to be a period of austerity. I don't know whether you remember the so-called Darling plan, which basically involved trying to get rid of the structural elements and the fiscal deficit over seven years, I think. Um, whereas the coalition wanted to do it in four or five. Um, there's, there's an argument about whether uh, it's better to um, you know, drag out the pain rather than have it quickly. Um, there's an argument about whether we should have had more tax and less spending cuts. I mean, you know, there are legitimate arguments both ways, and I suppose I would have valued for a bit more reliance on taxation. But there was no fundamental um, difficulty in my mind, accepting the fact that there had to be a period of fiscal tightening, uh, which is one of the definitions of austerity. You know, we're in the same position again now. Um, and if you're the Chancellor of the Exchequer, there's very little option. Do you regard your time as Business Secretary as a success? And uh, what, what would, what, if you had to name one or two crowning uh, successes, uh, of your time, what would they be? Yes, I think there was some, you know, that you win some, so you lose some, right? Mm. Um, but I think um, th th there were some durable, um, positive achievements. I mean, the first was the industrial strategy, which made quite a big impact on reviving the car industry, the aerospace industry, biotech, um, and it was a, a an approach which, of course, is now widely accepted, you know, the Biden administration approach to um, industrial policy. Um, and it was indeed carried on <clears throat> under Theresa May for a while um, until it was killed off in um, 2019. So the industrial strategy, I think, was a success. I introduced the British Business Bank, which was a key source of credit. Um, it was the main vehicle for supporting business through the COVID emergency. Um, I set up the Green Investment Bank, which sadly the Tories privatised to this um, Australian company Macquarie, which has done so much damage. That was, I thought that was vindictive and petty, and it means that we have lost a very useful institution. So it was a success setting it up, but it ultimately failed. Um, I also set up what's called a catapult network to help um, small, medium-sized companies get access to um, the latest technologies. That's working pretty well uh, around the country. It's not a high-profile thing, but it's doing well. And paradoxically, um, I think the, the most successful thing I did um, was the tuition fee policy, which was politically a complete disaster for the Lib Dems, as you will remember, but actually turned out to have been very good policy. 
it, it uh, kept universities afloat financially. Um, it was a more progressive in income distribution terms. In fact, the Institute of Fiscal Studies have said it was the most successful progressive policy for two or three decades. Um, and it spared large numbers of young people the costs of upfront costs. And as a result, we got more people going to university and more people from disadvantaged backgrounds. So it was, although it was a political disaster, it was, from a policy point of view, a considerable success. Why do you think it is that 13 years later, people still, they still mention the tuition fee issue? And it sort of seems to me that every major political party makes major blunders. I mean, the Tory party has certainly made major blunders within the last few months and, and couple of years. Why is it that there's obviously a, a breaking of trust, but this one thing has endured to sort of um, keep reminding the Lib Dems about, um, yeah. Well, it's endured partly because the uh, opponents, particularly on, on the left, uh, were very successful in weaponizing it as a policy. Hmm. Um, uh, but the main reason was that it was seen as a breach of trust. I mean, the party had made a, an explicit promise. And Nick Clegg had appeared on television, you know, pledging things, which we then had to go back yeah. on. I mean, it, it was a terrible political misjudgment. And we'd argued about it quite strongly before the election, that um, he was the leader and he got his way. Um, and we were stuck with the pledge. Uh, so, I, but I th it was the betrayal of the pledge, which of course then led to rioting students and general bad feeling um, that was the source of the problem. Yeah. Thank you. I want to briefly just fast forward to your uh, leadership of the Lib Dems, just to briefly uh, look at some of that leadership. So, um, I was wondering, did you feel a bit sad for Tim Farron um, when you had to step in because he was, he felt, I think it was, torn between living as a faithful Christian and a political leader. Uh, did you feel a bit sorry for him or what was your yeah, response? I, I, did. I did and I thought the people who were hounding him were behaving very unreasonably. Yeah. Um, I, I think he actually, that was, that was the main reason he stepped down, but, but it's also been a, a fairly disastrous election. I mean, we, we had, I think we were still on 12 MPs um you know the, we hadn't made any progress i think there was a general sense of disappointment that even though we were the anti-brexit party we hadn't made any progress um and so he felt responsible for that and added to which he then had this crisis of conscience but of course um you should be able to um lead a party even though you may have a a disagreement on, on sort of ethical things. I mean, there is this issue now in Scotland with, with um, uh, the, the, the contestant who had very similar views actually to Tim Farron who was seeking the leadership and it should be possible to say that look I, I have my personal views which I feel strongly about uh, but society uh, I, I can't don't want to impose them on the rest of the country so I will accept um, that, you know, we, we will have gay marriage or um, relative freedom of abortion or whatever it is. And people have forgotten now that Shirley Williams and uh, Charles Kennedy were both 
Catholics who privately disagreed uh, with some of the ethical positions that the party had taken up, but it didn't damage them politically. And they were very skillful in separating their private conscience from their uh, House of Commons voting. Yeah. And quickly on your leadership, um, what is it like leading a party from day to day? Because that's such a, it's not a normal job. It's, it's such a, one, it's one of those jobs that not many people ever have. Um, it's, yes, it's very difficult, um, even though we were a relatively small party. I mean, I say small, but it, it was, um, we had a small number of MPs when I was there, 12, hmm. as against 65 in the days of Charles Kennedy. But the membership was three times bigger. You know, we had a massive membership, of well over 100,000. We were approaching the size of the Tory party. So it was a mass membership party, even though our parliamentary representation was very poor. Uh, and the, the difficulty I had was that whereas in government, it's very easy to get into the media, you just open your mouth and, um, you know, the BBC, ITV around for an interview. It, it, and when you're leading a relatively small opposition party in parliament it's very difficult to get any attention it's very difficult to get called in parliament uh, we had a problem that the SNP had more MPs than we did so they were treated as the third party not the Lib Dems um, so getting publicity getting attention getting um, you know getting people to listen to what we had to say was very difficult um, and so, of course, people immediately start saying, where is the leader? You know, why isn't he out there? Well, mm. of course, you are out there, but nobody's reporting it. So so you're in the constant pressure from your own side to be more prominent, though it's very difficult to deliver that. Uh, added to which, you've got all the internal issues around fundraising, because running a party is very expensive, so you've got to cultivate donors. Uh, some of whom are very difficult and temperamental and think that by giving the party money, they should be deciding what the policy is. So you, you're trying to manage that. Um, you're trying to manage your party headquarters, where, you know, 70 or 80 people who have their own agendas. Uh, and, and I have no direct control over because it's a separate organization. Um, all of that, you know, crowds in. It's very, very, party management is a very, very, emotionally draining experience. Um, it was actually, being a cabinet minister was a bit of a doddle compared with um, being party leader. Well, thanks so much uh, for coming on the podcast today. I uh, really enjoyed it and uh, felt, felt very humbled to be able to interview you. So thank you okay. so much. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to this interview with Sir Vince Cable. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed interviewing Sir Vince. And just a quick note to keep an eye out for next week's episode, which should be with uh, Lord Neil Kunick, um, former leader of the opposition, former Labour Party leader, one of the most impactful figures on British politics across the past 50 years. So it should be a really uh, enjoyable listen. Um, and yeah, I uh, hope, you, hope you all have a lovely uh, day and a lovely week. Uh, thank you. Bye.